Rachel Botsman is an award-winning author and expert on trust. Recognized as one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum, Botsman specializes in how we can navigate trust at a time when fake news, polarizing ideas, and limitless information abound. Botsman joined Ivy for a live conversation in Boston, exploring how technology is transforming human relationships, creating a new era of trust, and what this all means for life, work, and how we do business. All the technologies that we have in society today, whether that's artificial intelligence or social media, are they making us smarter about who we trust? Or are they encouraging us to give our trust away too easily to the wrong people and the wrong places? Please enjoy our live conversation with Rachel Botsman. This episode is brought to you by Emerge 212 Office Space Elevated, New York City's premier operator of full-service office suites. Emerge 212's fully furnished offices are sleek, sophisticated, and high-tech, perfect for seasoned entrepreneurs who want to put their best foot forward, companies seeking to launch a New York City team, or businesses looking to secure an address in the city with virtual office capabilities. With locations near Grand Central, Rockefeller Plaza, and Columbus Circle, Emerge 212 enables companies to elevate their meeting and business experience through high-end, customized spaces, so your business can focus on operating, not operations. To begin working out of Manhattan's premier office space, or to reserve a conference room for an upcoming event, visit Emerge212.com. Mention Ivy and you'll receive two months of complimentary rent on a 13-month lease. Good evening, everyone. It is lovely to be back in Boston. Um, I know it doesn't sound like it, but I did live in the States for eight years and Boston was home for two. No one understood whatever I was saying when I was here, so um, hopefully you will. But I forgot how cold it was um, and how lovely this town is, so it really is very nice to be back. Um, as Jesse said, I'm going to talk to you this evening about who can you trust, very big question mark, um, and really talk about this trust shift that I see happening from institutions to individuals and the consequences of this trust shift that really are both good and bad. Um, just before we get started, I thought we would do a little exercise just so I can get a sense of you in the room. Um, let's start with a really easy one. Could you raise your hand if you've ever been a guest on Airbnb? Okay, that's pretty much the whole room. Um, and who's been a host on Airbnb? Okay, about five, six, half hand raises. Kind of a host? <laughs> no. um, and that's actually normal because it requires more trust to be a host than a guest. Um, anyone own the cryptocurrency Ethereum? This gentleman here. Um, who doesn't know what Ethereum is? Okay, thank you for raising your hand. Um, does anyone own Bitcoin? Okay, a few more people. Um, and you don't have to tell me what you bought. Um, I'm on there all the time for research purposes. I know a lot about how drugs are shipped after this book. Um, so who's been on the dark web and just seen what it looks like? No one wants to raise their hand. <laughs> Who doesn't know what the dark web is? Let's start there. Okay, thank you for your honesty. Right. So um, I will explain how all these ideas are examples of how technology is changing the way that we can trust one another, whether that's um, through our homes, through cryptocurrencies, through drug dealers on the dark web. Um, but I thought I'd start tonight, I like to tell stories, and the book is full of stories, many of them about my family and many, many bad trust decisions that we've made in our lives. But when I was thinking about trust, it's a very abstract concept. So I was thinking about where my interest in how we place our faith in strangers and new ideas and new people, where it had come from and why I wanted to study it. And I realized that it had started at a very, very young age. So this is a true story. Um, it's quite unbelievable, so you're going to have to trust me. It really is true. Um, but what happened when I was five years old, my mum decided she was going to go back to work and that she needed to hire someone to look after my brother and I. Now, who's a Downton Abbey fan? Okay, a few of you. So for those of you who don't know, Downton Abbey is this very posh, 
British series, and they hire people through this magazine called The Lady. They hire their gardeners and their butlers and their nannies. And for some strange reason, my mum decided to place an advert in The Lady um, to find someone to look after, my brother and I. And I'll never forget the woman who walked through the door. Her name was Doris, and she had this really big mop of curly hair, and she wore these silver spectacles, and she had a very thick Scottish accent, so she would roll her R's every time she said Rachel. But the thing I remember was that she had told my parents that she was a member of the Salvation Army. So she was wearing this uniform complete with this bonnet. Now, these things are something important. They're what we call trust signals. And trust signals are clues or symbols that we knowingly or unknowingly use to decide whether someone is trustworthy or not. Now, the problem is that we can often tune into the wrong signals or that some signals are louder than others or that we can be manipulated by trust signals. Now, Doris lived with us for around 10 months and for the most part, she was actually a very good nanny. I remember her being quite cheerful. Mum said she was quite reliable and there wasn't anything really suspicious about her. And then she disappeared. And she disappeared, and by the end of the third day, my parents are now really worried about lovely Doris, the Salvation Army nanny. And so they go round to see our neighbours, because she was friendly with their nanny, and his name was Mr. Luxembourg. And he said, you know, it's really funny that you've come round to see me, because I've just discovered that your nanny and our nanny are running the largest drugs ring in North London. <laughs> so... And my parents didn't know, and this is 10 months in. Now my parents are really worried that Dor Doris is going to come back. So they search her room, and they find all kinds of things in there that you really don't want laying around when you've got a five- and eight-year-old in the house. Um, but anyway, the story got better, I think, um, because three days later, the police come round, they arrest my dad, because um, rather than going to the Salvation Army, Doris has robbed a bank in an armed robbery, and she's used our silver family Volvo estate as a getaway car. So um, this is a remarkable story, and <laughs> um, <laughs> I like to tell it because I like to remind my parents that they left me in the care of a drug-dealing bank robber for more than <laughs> 10 months of my life, and this could have gone horribly wrong. But the reason why I find this story really interesting is that I went back and I interviewed them and I interviewed their friends because I wanted to understand how they made such a bad decision. And what I realized is they talked a lot about how they thought they had enough information to make a decision about her, when in reality, there was a trust gap. And this is quite profound when you think about it, because what they faced is very true to society today. And that is that the illusion of information is far more dangerous than ignorance. And this is what you see when you dig into sort of hardcore trust theory. Um, the trust theorist, and one of my favorites, a guy called Diego Gambetta, he, he puts it so well. He says, trust has two enemies, not one. The first is bad character, and the second is poor information. So the question that I started to research was, could technology help solve these problems? Were the technologies, are the technologies that we have in society today, whether that's artificial intelligence or social media, are they making us smarter about who we trust? Or are they encouraging us to give our trust away too easily to the wrong people and the wrong places? Now, I think this is a really important question to figure out. Come in. Not to embarrass you, but anyway. Um, and the reason why, um, let me do a quick exercise to figure this out, right? Um, I had to pick, like, it's hard to pick someone to compete with Trump, right? So um, we're going to do an exercise. It's, it's highly sophisticated. It's called the Botsman Trust Barometer. And um, the way it works is I'm going to ask you who you think is the least trustworthy person on this slide, and you get one boo, okay, so you have to think about it, you can only use one boo, right? you, can't use, you can't boo for more than one person on this slide, so if you think Harvey Weinstein is the least trustworthy person on this slide, you can boo now, that, someone said that with conviction, boo, okay, um, if you think President Trump is the least trustworthy person on this slide, you can boo now, it's a little bit stronger, um, if you think, does anyone know who this is? So who is this? Uh, she's the uh, newly uh, assigned like, citizenship for Saudi Arabia. That's exactly right. 
Her, her name is Sophia, and she is the first robot that has received citizenship in Saudi Arabia. Um, now, if you think Sophia is the least trustworthy person on this slide, boo now. Yeah, a few people, but the robot has beaten the president of the United States, so I just want to point that out. Okay, so um, <laughs> I'm going to just in reverse. We're going to do um, who you trust the most. And you don't get to boo, you get to clap, right? I know it's a bit harder, this one, but um, if you think Google is the most trustworthy company on this slide, clap now. If you think Facebook is the most trustworthy company on this slide, clap now. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, um, interesting. And if you think Amazon is the most trustworthy company on the slide, clap now. So I think Amazon won, Google second, Facebook last, quite clearly. Um, now, I find this really interesting because I was waiting, you're all very smart, so I was waiting for you to say, Rachel, this is a rubbish exercise. It is, it's a rubbish exercise. Um, and the reason why I made you do it is because this is how we talk about trust. We talk about trust in general terms, right? We don't trust this person, we don't trust this company. And it's a bad way of talking about trust because what you should have said to me is to do what? Sorry? For what? Right, exactly, because trust is highly contextual. So you can trust that Trump's going to tweet something at 4 a.m., right? But you don't trust him to negotiate with North Korea. Um, you can trust Weinstein to produce great movies, but you don't trust him necessarily around women. Um, now, Amazon I find really interesting because many of you clap for Amazon, and I think what you're clapping for is that you have confidence, you have trust that when you order something, it's going to arrive. But if I ask you, did you trust them to pay taxes, you might give me a different answer. Now, this is really important to keep in mind because it's not the narrative that you see in the press. We see trust spoken about in these general terms. And it's even, um, so you've probably seen surveys like this. This one is from Edelman, uh, the communications firm. Gallup are doing them, Pew are doing them, Reuters are doing them. And they are slightly problematic because they ask questions like, do you trust the media? Well, are you talking about the New York Times or are you talking about Mumsnet? You know, like it's, it's a big difference for different people. And what are we asking the media to do? But that said, we do need to take these surveys seriously because they are showing an historic pattern. And they're showing that trust, not just in government, um, but in all major institutions, the very fabric of society, so charities, religious organizations, the media, big business and government is at an all-time historic low. And the institution that actually fascinates me the most is not the institution with the lowest levels of trust, because that's always been government. It's the one with the sharpest decline, and that is the media. So in many parts of the West, the media has experienced a 16-point decline in trust in the last 12 months. Now, you could argue that's a U.S. phenomenon, but we're seeing the same thing in Europe, and we're seeing the same thing in countries like Australia. Now, the reason why, and I'm going to unpack this, why this is the case, I think institutional trust is in this sharp decline is actually for a design reason. If you look at the way institutional trust is designed, that we take it on faith, often blind faith, that it's held in the hands of the privileged few and that used to operate behind closed doors, that just wasn't designed for the digital age. So it's not that necessarily institutions have become less trustworthy, it's just that we find out about these trust breaches and they get amplified in ways that we've never seen before. So one of the things that I wanted to understand is are there common reasons why we're seeing this decline of trust? And what I discovered is that there are three common drivers. The first is lack of accountability. And I don't know about you, but this is the one that makes me very angry. So when I read things like the CEO of Volkswagen walked around, walked away with a multi-million dollar paycheck off the diesel gate and that nothing really changed in that company, that I feel angry about. When you read about after the financial crisis that only one measly banker went to jail, that's a lack of accountability. And this is really problematic when it comes to trust because first of all, you have a loss of trust. And then after a loss of trust, you have an erosion of faith. And if people don't believe that the system is changing, that's when institutions start to lose their legitimacy. The second, and we're hearing about this to death, but there are actually two different things. So we often hear about filter bubbles and echo chambers and fake news. And there are different things going on. So 
echo chambers is because the internet sorts us into these online groups. And it sorts us into these online groups where we find people with similar views, where we find information that verifies our fears, where we find things that actually amplifies our anger. And this is very precarious because it magnifies this cycle of distrust. I'm going to talk more about fake news later. And then the third one, which I find really interesting um, from a research perspective, but quite frightening, is what I call the inversion of influence. So if you think about your grandparents, for a long period in history, um, influence and trust has flown in a top-down fashion. So we used to look up to academics and authorities and regulators and CEOs and all kinds of experts. And now what's happening is that influence is being inverted. So a really good example of this is in Britain, where I come from, during Brexit, they did a survey to find out what was influencing people's opinion as to whether they should remain or leave. And they found out that the average person in Britain trusted a stranger on the bus for an opinion on the long-term consequences, long-term economic consequences of leaving Europe more than an economist. This is this inversion of influence that we're seeing. And all this is adding up to a trust vacuum. And what happens in a trust vacuum is it creates a space for conspiracy theories. It creates the FET space for people who know how to speak to our feelings versus facts. So this quote, I really think, sums up this erosion of trust. Um, it's by one of my favorite philosophers, a gentleman called Bertrand Russell. And he said, the whole problem of the world, and he wrote this decades ago, is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves, but wiser people are so full of doubts. That said, I don't think we should tune into this narrative that trust is in crisis. First of all, I don't think it helps the problem, but I don't think it's an accurate reflection of what's going on. Because a better way to think of trust is to think of it like energy. So many of you know that energy can't be destroyed. Energy continually changes form. And so what's happening is that troughs that used to flow upwards is now flowing sideways through new technologies, through systems, through networks, through marketplaces, and it's becoming distributed. And that's leading to the third biggest trust shift of all kind. Now, why is this so profound? Well, trust has only changed form twice previously in history. So the first chapter of trust um, that's really easy to get our heads around is local trust. So this is when we lived in small villages and communities and everyone largely knew everyone else. So trust was personal, it was direct. If you did something wrong, you get a bad reputation, everyone would know about it. Now, when we moved to cities, when we migrated to cities and uh, larger towns, when we wanted to trade internationally, when we went through the Industrial Revolution, we invented institutional trust. So we invented corporate brands. We invented intermediaries like real estate agents, insurance brokers. We invented all kinds of risk mechanisms. And the impact was that trust became less personal. Trust started to flow through organizations and corporations. It became institutionalized. Now what's happening today is that a third form of trust is rising up, this distributed form of trust. And it's challenging institutions in all kinds of interesting and profound ways. So how does this distributed trust work? So what I've seen and what we're going to explore is trust working on three different levels in society. And the first is trusting new ideas. How do you get people to trust new ideas? And this could be anything from, I don't know, trusting a self-driving car or getting people to trust using their credit cards online. Let's do a quick experiment um, to, and there's a purpose behind this experiment, but trust me, right now I actually want you to get your phones out. I know it's dangerous. I'm encouraging you to get your phones out, right? And I want you to unlock your phones. Pardon? Give it to me. No, I don't want all your phones. No, that would be a lot of phones, right? But I do want you to give your phone to the person on the left or the person on the right. But basically, you shouldn't have your phone. Just swap your phone. Right. Now, I'm going to give you... I'm going to give you... Um, shh, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. 30 seconds. You can do... I'm giving you permission. Whatever you want with that person's phone. 
You can go now. You can do whatever you want with their phone. Okay. So, um, why don't I make you do... Now you have to put the phones away again, right? Like, <laughs> move the temptation. Um, I made you do that for... There's two reasons why I made you do it. First, one of the reasons why I love studying human behavior is like, we like to believe we're really complicated and unique, but we're so predictable as human beings. So predictable, right? So you, I knew you were going to fall into three distinct camps. So the first, and I won't name any names, but there was a few people on this side who did not want to partake in this exercise. So they do one of two things. They pretend they don't have a phone. I do not believe you. <laughs> Really, come on, I know you have a phone. Um, or they get the phone out and they reluctantly give it to the other person, but they make it very clear not to touch the phone, right? So <laughs> the second group, and that's actually the majority of you, and it's why you, you giggle because you're nervous, right? So you play along, but you're looking at that other person all the time, right? Like you're asking for permission and you're kind of doing the same thing simultaneously, like, oh, yeah, exactly. Like you're mirroring one another, right? And then there's a third group of you, and you have a very different relationship to this exercise. And you go straight into the, not naming any names, right? But you go straight into the phone. I don't know if you were tweeting or Instagramming or on their Facebook or messaging that person's partner. Some of you even took a photo, right? But you have a different relationship to that person's phone and what you can do. Now, that was your phone, and it was 30 seconds, and it's a bit weird. Right? So it makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. But you could see what was going on. And that's what makes some of these ideas, some of these ideas where we use technology to trust total strangers at an accelerated pace so phenomenal. So the one I thought I'd talk about, because I kind of guess that a lot of you would be using this, is Airbnb. So some of you might recognize these guys. They look a bit different today. But this is Brian, Joe, and Nate. They're the co-founders of Airbnb. And I was fortunate fortunate enough to meet them in 2008. And I was working on my first book, um, which was on the so-called sharing economy. And it was really interesting because um, one of the things I love about what I do is I get to meet entrepreneurs and they are at very different stages of their journeys. And you start to get a nose around the ones that you know are going to be successful. And Joe, Brian and Nate had this, it was like this magic blend of curiosity so they're intensely curious about human beings and the world and problems that they could solve. But they were also remarkably resilient. And this is, this is what makes entrepreneurs special. It's not the ones that just are curious and come up with ideas, but those that are really resilient. And so two things happened. I said to my editor, um, I found the opening story of my first book. And he's like, no, you cannot open with that because that company is going to be over by the time this book is published. So, um, I held strong. Um, but the second person I told was I came back and I told my husband, his name is Chris, and I said, I think I've met the next eBay. And he said, really? And I said, I think we should invest in them. We should give them like our money. And so <laughs> it was actually more his money at the time, I have to say. And so he said, well, tell me what they do. And you've got to keep in mind, I only had this photo because this was when um, <laughs> I'm not really selling it very well, right? But this was when Airbnb was mattresses on the floor. And this is when that's how it started. And I said, so just ignore the mattresses. And he said, well, that's all I can see, the mattresses. But OK, um, because I said, you know, things always start downstream. And then they move upstream. That's the way disruption works, right? So it's going to move upstream. And so he said, well, tell me what it's going to be like. I said, well, you know, people, they're going to open up their homes and they're going to take photos of their bedrooms and <laughs> their bathrooms and all the rooms that you usually keep hidden. And they're going to put them on the internet and strangers from all around the world are going to book to come and stay on them. And I, he looked at me like, he's like, you want to give these guys your money, our money? And I said, yes. And he said, this idea is never going to work. And I said, why is it going to work? And I remember he said, strangers will never trust one another. And they won't trust one another with their homes. And I said, you're wrong. Because look at eBay. Now, is anyone married or is anyone a partner, a lawyer or a barrister? Just raise your hand. One few people, right? They are a nightmare to argue with, right? Like, you cannot win because you're always in a courtroom and they're really good at firing back with a very good point, right? So he said to me, this isn't like eBay because if you think about eBay, eBay is online transactions, often with pseudonyms 
And what you're talking about is people using the internet to get off the internet and to meet up face to face. So we're not giving them our money. Now, he was kind of right because it was remarkable even back then to see how technology would transform trust between strangers. And he was also really wrong because <laughs> what he couldn't see was, first of all, um, you know, the beautiful thing about Airbnb is that you don't just rent spare homes. So if you own a tree house, you can make a lot of money. Um, I was actually with the founders the other day and you know, they've launched experiences. So this, this wolf man, um, is making more than $150,000 a year. So the, he owns wolves. And so I said, show, I should build a tree house, get a pack of wolves and make Ramon noodles. Cause like that is a killer combination on Airbnb. <laughs> if you have the, these three things, could you not? But you, what they did was they created a market and they're doing it now with trips. They're creating a market for assets and experiences that never had a marketplace before. And that's what they saw and that's what they've continued to see. And so think of the phone exercise. Think of how uncomfortable it made you. And now Airbnb, according to the Wall Street Journal, are the second most valuable hospitality brand in the world. They were number one. Marriott definitely did not like it. So they made a few acquisitions to retain the top spot again. And I think this chart is amazing. It's amazing because it shows what technology has done to trust. It also shows how wrong Chris was, right? So <laughs> we printed it out, I have it on the fridge <laughs> with a post-it note with a big arrow saying, always listen to your wife, right? So <laughs> when she comes home with dodgy pictures, there might be something in it. But <laughs> what I remember about this conversation with Airbnb, and I think it was actually what led me down this path of really studying trust is Joe, one of the founders, and he's the design thinker. He said to me, I said, so you're building a marketplace? He said, no, no, we're not building a marketplace. He said, most businesses in this world, they're built on money. And money is a certain type of currency. Money is the currency of transactions. And it will only go so far. Our business is built on trust. Because if we think that way, trust is the currency of interactions. And we'll design this business, we'll design this product, we'll design the culture, we'll em employ people in a completely different way. And I think this is really interesting because very few companies that you interact with are actually built on trust. So what have Airbnb done? Airbnb, everyone who raised their hand, has taken something that I call a trust leap. And a trust leap is, is they're very important in our lives because what they are is when we as human beings, we take a risk to do something new or to do it differently from the way that we've always done it. And trust leaps, it can be very small things. Um, you know, when we switch from paper bills to online bills, that's a trust leap. They can also be quite monumental things. So the first time we let a car drive us, um, we let a machine take over the wheel, that's gonna be a trust leap. The first time we all got in elevators, and do you call them elevators or lifts? Elevators? Elevators. First time we got in an elevator, um, that was a trust leap. The first time we used eBay, so, so forth and so on. So this becomes really important because trust is the conduit for which new ideas travel. Trust is the way innovation happens, the way human beings move forward. And whenever you're asking someone to trust, it's a process. So the next time you use the word trust, don't think of it as a value. Don't think of it as an attribute. Think of it as a process, something that you're giving someone or something. And whenever this happens, you are in a known place. This is where humans like to be, in this known box, the place of certainty. And there's an unknown box. So the unknown box, it could be an idea. It could be a person. It could be something like a restaurant you've never been to, a place you've never been to. It could be a new product, a new system. The line between these two things is what we call risk in the world. So risk is the management of uncertainty that matters. Not all risk matters, so it's the management of uncertainty that matters. And you've probably found this in your organizations. Organizations love talking about risk because risk can be measured. So you'll find like organizations, they do a risk matrix and you know they do a traffic light thing and risk is done. Risk isn't what enables humans to act. That force is trust. So the easiest way to think about trust is it's the glue. It's like liquid gold pulling you from the known into the unknown. And that's why I define trust as a confident relationship with the unknown. 
And when you view trust in this way, you start to see how it enables us to place our faith in strangers and unknown things, how it enables us to be vulnerable. What's also important is that trust and transparency are not synonymous. So how many of you have heard, like, the way we should rebuild trust is to be more transparent, or something along those lines? Just raise your hands. Right. So why isn't transparency synonymous with trust? Well, think of the definition. If you need things to be transparent, you've given up on trust. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship where they go, I trust you, but they're checking your phone. That may be a transparent relationship, but it's a very low-trust relationship. So it's a very sad state in society when we think transparency is the solution because we've kind of given up on trust. Okay, so let me just give you a very quick metaphor. that, um, And this is a metaphor. I was just in Italy, and they kept asking for the equivalent in Italian food. So they were like, mozzarella, sparkling wine. I was like, no, it's, it's a metaphor for how you build trust. So... Um, <laughs> It got lost in translation, believe me. So the way it works is, um, sorry, this story was um, when you're writing a book, you distract yourself by researching things that you think have nothing to do with the book. And so I got really stuck and decided to research the history of sushi. I don't know why. Um, but what I discovered was a really interesting story. What I discovered was that sushi first entered into the United States in the 60s. No one ate it. I mean, this was the era of like meat and potatoes and two veg. And then the chef in LA, um, when the sushi first came in, the seaweed was on the outside. There was no avocado. And so people looked at it and I'm, like, I'm not eating seaweed and raw fish. So chef in LA, he had this insight to invert the role. So he said, why don't we put the rice that people are familiar with on the outside and add some avocado, which is an ingredient that people are familiar with. Now, this is brilliant. This is brilliant when you come, when you think about trust. And I call it the California role principle because it highlights something really important, which is that people don't want something entirely new. They want the familiar done differently. So if you want to build trust, you have to make things feel strangely familiar. Now you think of people that are gaining our trust. They're very good at making things feel strangely familiar. Okay. So that's the base level of stuck, how you build trust in ideas. Now let's talk about trust in platforms, um, technology systems. How are they gaining our trust? How does that work? Now this is kind of problematic. Um, let's do another quick exercise. Okay, so fake news is in the news all the time. Um, and I want to test your ability to detect face, fake news. So all these pieces I'm going to show you, they all appeared in my Facebook feed. So if you think this first piece of um, content was fake news, um, it was in August 2014, and they're saying that they 145 people been infected of Ebola in Atlanta, carrying the disease, were flown in from Africa. If you think this news is fake, please raise your hand. So some up, some down, some up. Um, so around 60% of the room. Okay. This one's a bit easier. So um, the Pope endorsed Trump. This was shared a million times. Who thinks this is fake? Okay, the whole room. Um, and then this one, um, which was about uh, after Trump made the immigration ban, that deportations were about to begin. If you think this news is fake, raise your hand. So about five people, six people. Um, all these pieces of content are fake news. Um, and it's really interesting. Stanford have been doing a study to actually detect our ability to uh, discern what is real news and, and fake news. Now, what I find interesting about this is I started, when I saw these pieces of content and realized that they were fake news, a few things went through my head. The first was, how do I know if this news is real or fake? The second was, where do I go to find the truth? Where do I actually go to verify this information? And the third was like, why is this appearing at the top of my Facebook feed with my friend's baby pictures? And what I realized in that moment was that I had outsourced my trust to an algorithm. And when you think about the number of areas of our, different areas of our lives that we're already doing this, you know, so I have two young children. I have a six-year-old son. He will not watch normal television because Netflix knows him. Normal TV does not know him. 
He has outsourced his trust to an algorithm, but this process is so automatic. Now, when we hear about fake news, our reaction is to blame the platforms. And I find it really interesting. So I've been following sort of, um, excuse me, how Facebook are trying to combat this problem. And one of the things that they've done um, is recently actually, while I've been talking about this, is that they've added more moderators. But when I made this slide, which was only a few weeks ago, they had 4,500 moderators. So these are the people that decide which content should stay and which should be removed. Now, you crunch the numbers. We post more than 1.3 million posts every single minute, more than 4,500 photos every single second on Facebook. That works out about one moderator per 466,000 users. So the challenge is the scale of these problems. And the interesting thing is that these platforms, they are only a mirror of our own behavior. So when we don't like what we see, we blame the mirror. And so there's all these conversations going on around how these tech platforms have to take more accountability, and they do, right? They have to take more accountability. They have to think of themselves like the new institutions in society. And I think that falls onto two levels. One, they have to be more proactive around reducing the risk of bad things happening. And the second is what we really need to figure out is how are they responsible when things go wrong? But I think the danger is in this conversation is that we can outsource too much of this responsibility to the platforms. Do we really want companies like, <coughs> excuse me, I'm losing my voice, Google and Facebook to decide what is good and bad content? That's giving them more power and control. So I think one of the things that we need to be doing as individuals is actually slowing down. Because we're living in this age of trust on speed, accelerated trust. You know, I was with a friend in London recently, and she was standing there, and she was so annoyed that her Uber was more than two minutes. And then she said, I can't believe it, I'm having the worst day. And I said, what's going on? She said, my task rabbit is four hours late, and I don't yet have a date, and it's 10 a.m. And I was like, this, this, is, this is this age of trust on speed. And so it's really hard to slow down. And I'm just as guilty because this is what technology wants to do. It wants to make it seamless. But efficiency is the enemy of trust. What the tech companies call friction, I call human connection. And so we really need to pause and slow down and think about how quickly we're giving our trust away. OK, I want to leave time for questions. So I'm going to talk about the last level of the stack. And um, this is really about trusting another individual. And the first thing I say is that individual, it could be a new human, human or it could be a machine or a bot, an artificially intelligent bot. And I think one of the biggest trust challenges we're going to face over the next decade is that we won't be able to discern between the two. We won't be able to discern when we're trusting a human or when we're trusting a machine. Now, the interesting thing about trust is that people often say we need more trust. Again, this is not a narrative that you should buy into. We don't need more trust in society because we don't want more trust in bad people. We don't want more trust in people like Bernie Madoff, right? What we want is more trustworthiness. And the great thing is that there is a science behind what makes all of us trustworthy. Now, again, as I said, this is contextual. So there's two sides to this equation. The easiest way to think of this is that there's a how side of the equation, like a competence side of the equation. And this is really made up of two things. Competence is about your skills and your knowledge and the information you have to do what you say you're going to do. Reliability is very much to do with time. So how responsive you are, whether you're on time, whether you're dependable, predictable. This is the how side of the equation. Now, what's more interesting is the why side of the equation, which really comes down to two key ingredients. The first is benevolence. And benevolence is how much you genuinely care, which you tend to smell in people, right? You tend to smell if they, they're authentic and they care. But this is the piece where trust really falls down, and that's around integrity. And integrity isn't necessarily being a good person. Integrity is about stating your intentions, stating your motives, and figuring out whether they're aligned. 
So think of organizations when you don't trust them. There's often a misalignment of intentions. So when banks come out and they say, we're here for our customers, and then they make multi-billion dollar profits, it's really hard to trust that their intentions are aligned. Think of Doris, the dodgy nanny, right? She was actually competent and she was reliable, and you could even argue that she cared, but her intentions definitely weren't aligned with my parents. And this is really tricky because it's really hard to make these assessments in other human beings, but it gets even harder when we're making them about machines. So let me share with you um, a quick story. Some of you, I wrote um, a story a couple of weeks ago for the New York Times, and it was all about parenting with Alexa and technology. And um, I told the story of, this is my, my daughter. Um, she looks a little bit like me. Um, and she's, she's a real character. Um, and the thing that is really important about this photo um, is not that she's wearing two tiaras to play in the garden, because um, that's what you need, but she loves clothes. So I don't know how many of you have um, kids, but they'll drive you crazy about sleep, food, and clothes, because they are the things that they can control in their lives. So getting dressed in the morning is, is an absolute nightmare with Gracie, because she changes and she unchanges. So um, no one can help Gracie make a decision about what to wear. And so I thought, I'm often doing these experiments with the children. Not, I know that sounds weird, but um, <laughs> not on the children. Well, they are on the children, actually, but they're very mild. Don't worry about it. Um, and um, they love me. And, um, <laughs> and so I thought I wanted to see, she's three and a half. She can't read or write, obviously. She can't really tell the difference between right and wrong yet. And she can't ride a bike, right? So she's at that stage of her learning. And I wanted to see what she did with Alexa. Who has got an Alexa? An Amazon Echo. Okay, interesting. So I put Alexa on the kitchen table, and um, I said to her, Gracie, I'd like you to meet Alexa. And the first thing she said to me is, is she like Siri? I thought this was amazing. She's three and a half, and she understands that these are both assistants, but in quite different forms, because one's in a phone, right, and the other one's in a speaker. And I said, hmm, she is a bit like Siri, but I think she's smarter than Siri. Now, you can do anything you want with Alexa. Now, I think it's because she, she's half British, half Australian. And so the first thing she asked Alexa was about the weather. And she asked Alexa so many questions about the weather. We knew it wasn't going to rain. And then um, she asked uh, her jokes. She was asking her jokes. And then she was asking her to play music from that film Sing and then Frozen. So we heard the soundtrack over and over again. <laughs> now, I wasn't surprised by this because the interesting thing with technology is we often test it with things that we know, that we're comfortable with. So we often test it with things like information and facts. The second day, she figured out she could order things. Now imagine like a three and a half year old standing and with the power of their voice, they can order things. Now, I was quite worried about this, but this was my experiment, so I had to let it run. And it was very lucky because I was very lucky because she loves blueberries. So she decided to order a giant box of blueberries. And she couldn't believe it when they arrived at the door. Like, this was magic, right? And I didn't want to explain to her at this point that actually there's a corporate master behind this helpful female assistant, and its name is Amazon. Um, so I let it run, and the third day she comes downstairs, and she usually like clockwork, morning, mom, morning, Jack, morning, dad. And she said, she, she didn't say any of that. She stood in front of the speaker, and she said, good morning, Alexa. What should I do today? And then she said, what should I wear? Now remember, no one interferes. That child will go to school naked rather than let me dress her. Right? No one interferes with her clothes choices. It's taken her three days to ask Alexa what she should wear. Now what she didn't realize, and I did not tell her this, is that Alexa now has a camera. So she doesn't just hear you, she sees you if you've got this generation of Alexa. And because Amazon have just launched their fashion labels, they're going to try and do to fashion what they've done to books, it has this very helpful feature called Style Check. And so Gracie could stand in front of Alexa, and she could wear her tiara leopard number, or she could wear, I don't know what, I don't know, weird cat hat, giraffe bag <laughs> number, and Alexa would give her a rating and tell her that, she should wear this to school today, right? <laughs> and 
The thing that's frightening is what it will also do is make recommendations. So it might say to her, you know what, those trainers are kind of manky. Would you like a new pair shipped to your school or your home within the hour? Now, I think it's really interesting. We're so quick to criticize kids and technology, right? But she's done exactly what I've done. She's outsourced her trust to an algorithm. Now, why is this so significant? Well, it marks a very big transition that we've taken, already taken, in our trust in technology. So our trust, for a long period of time, was that technology did something. It was on that how side of the equation, that it was competent, and it was reliable, and it was predictable. <coughs> Think about your trust in a washing machine, or the trust in this slide kicker. What's happened is we're no longer trusting technology to do something for us, but trusting technology to decide something for us. And when you're trusting technology to decide something, the intention side, the why side of the algorithm becomes much more important. How do you trust the intentions of an algorithm? How do you teach that to your children? So I don't want to end on a negative note, because <laughs> that is a slightly negative note. Um, because technology can do amazing things. And if we go back to the question I started with you at the beginning, was, is the question in my research is, how can technology make us smarter about who we trust? How can it actually solve problems in our lives? So I decided to research whether my dear parents would hire Dodgy Doris today. And so I started interviewing the babysitting platform. So this is one called Urban Sitter. And Urban Sitter is founded by this wonderful woman called Lynn Perkins. And Urban Sitter is really interesting. Um, it's interesting for a few reasons, because even on this slide, do you remember I talked about trust signals at the beginning? They're digitizing trust signals. So they figured out that um, repeat sitter, repeat family, if that sitter or that family, the sitter went back, that's a really loud trust signal. They're figuring out, who does that sitter know that you know? That's a trust signal. But the piece that really interests me is that 75% of all applicants are rejected from the Urban Sitter platform. Only 25% make the cut. Because what they're doing is they're using machine learning to weed people out. People who are lying about their childcare diploma and their references that are fake or that they don't have a clean driving record or that they don't belong to the Salvation Army and in fact they're a drug dealer, right? So um, I said to Lynn, would Doris have got through? And she said, no, Doris would never have made the cut. And so I think this is really important because when we get it right, what technology can do is it can make our decisions more efficient. It can give us the information to make better decisions. And the biggest challenge that we face today is getting this right. Because what technology should do, it should amplify our emotional intelligence. It should amplify what it means to be human. And I believe that the organizations that will succeed are actually the ones that use technology to inject humanness back into the organization. They're going to be the organizations that ironically feel the most human and authentic. So I end on this note, but at the end of the day, trust is a human process. It's up to us. And we need to think more carefully about whether this person or this thing, or this piece of information is worthy of our trust. And I think every time we engage in that process in a conscious way, we're taking responsibility for the world that we want to live in. And we're helping to preserve what I think is society's most precious but fragile asset, which is trust. And it should also mean none of you hire a drug dealing, bank robbing <laughs> nanny for your children. Thank you very much. <laughs>so, for example, for the Fukushima, you know, nuclear yeah. disaster, yeah. after you do a serious analysis, actually it's not a technology problem, 
but it's the, the Tokyo Power who run you know the yeah. plant has you know the the bad practice. You know the other example is like you know for instance you know the uh, autonomous driving for the flight. Yeah. There's a data showing that you know a, you know a airplane flying by machine is more reliable by flying by two humans. Yeah. But however, in both cases, you know you require at least nine years of you know PhD education to understand what's going on over there. And also, you know, you also mentioned you know, during the Brexit, the people are more willing to trust strangers than the, the well-trained economics. Yeah. So in this case, you know, for example, you know, how do you think you know, we should restore the trust, you know, after, after certain disasters or events, you know, about really something is true? Thank you. No, it's it's a great, great question. And um, so the thing is quite sad is when you you study trust, you get a little bit excited when trust breaks down, like when there's a breach, and it happens like on a weekly basis. And the thing that's amazing to me, whether it's on a sort of a country level or a company level, um, you see the same pattern where people get it wrong. And the, the reverse of this is how to get it right. So the first thing is time. So think of Equifax, right? Think of the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers. Time, when people know about something and they keep it hidden, that is deadly when it comes to trust because you have the breach of trust and then you have the breach of keeping this thing hidden. So the response time and the responsiveness around the initial act is incredibly important. So how responsive you are. The second, and you picked up on this, is owning it. So when you go back and you look at how people explain something that happened, they, they often say like, you know, Equifax, it was an individual, it was like a worm in the system, or it was an anom anomaly, right? Or, um, the system overtook, uh, it was a system that broke down, right? That's, it's not an individual, it's a cultural error, or there's something that's going on. So rarely do organizations own the problem. And then there's all this finger pointing that goes on. So response time and then ownership is really important. The third is empathy. And empathy for the human consequences of what's taken place. So you talk about it in human language, um, which again, people get wrong. And then the fourth, which is your question, how you restore faith in it, is about accountability. So we got this wrong, and this is what we're doing to address the problem. Now, an organization, funny enough, a company that gets this right, a tech company, is Tesla, I think. So Tesla are very good at telling the long-term story, the narrative of where they're going. So when people die, unfortunately, you know, there's been two instances where people die, you know what it's for, and you know what they learned from that accident, and you know how they've updated and changed the car to improve on that experience. So they've involved people in a long-term journey so that you understand why that breakdown happens and how they've used that learning. So it's really these four phases, responsiveness, owning it, empathy, and then accountability so people actually believe something's really changed. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.